Well, good morning. Yes, yeah, still morning. My name is Galen Washington. I'm an elder here at the church. I'm a, as you heard, Morgan Stevens and his family will return from vacation next week. Uh, when he returns, we're going to get into a new series called Rise and Fall, The Life of David. Uh, last week, you heard from the amazing Barnabas Willis. Let's give him a hand real quick. He did a great job. Uh, this week... Today, I have the privilege of wrapping up our walk through the book of Galatians. I've got a lot that I'd like to share, and so I want to I jump right in. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you for your authority that's on display right now. I pray that you'd quiet every heart and mind so that we can all have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is you are saying and doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the book of Galatians records some tension that's going on, and Paul has a goal. He has two primary focuses, two two objectives. Um, He's trying to refute the agenda of what what were called the Judaizers, who were placing an ungodly yoke on the believers of that day. And he was also contending for the hearts and minds of those who were beginning to receive another gospel. Now, I don't want to oversimplify the tension that's on display in the letter to the Galatians, but the Gospel of John 1.17, I feel like it encapsulates the tension best, and it reads, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This is something that I like to call the tale of two ditches. These ditches are Legalism and lawlessness. Or you've got the the ceremonialism and the religiosity on one side, and you've got hyper-grace and Gnosticism and hedonism on the other side. But the truth is, Jesus Christ is the only one capable of holding the law in one hand and grace and truth in the other. It's almost as if he's saying, You can look at these if you want to, or you can fix your gaze on me. Not Galen, but Jesus. Okay. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul had one major focus, though, that he was trying to to achieve, and that was he wanted to keep the person of Jesus Christ at the center stage of the Galatians' thought life, their worship, etc. And so I, I want you guys to know, because I'm wrapping up a series, I'm going to punctuate it with a little bit of passion, and it's not aimed at any one person, but we're in a war, and I've been contending in, in this church, we're contending for the exaltation of the only one who truly matters. So roll with me, give me a little grace, and if I, feel, if I sound a little bit strong... Just pray, okay? Listen, anything that gets in the way of the exaltation of Jesus Christ weakens Christianity. It weakens Christ's followers. And I really want you guys to think about what it is I'm trying to say. I'm not saying anything that gets in the way of a person who is who was not the Savior, who didn't die, who didn't defeat death. I'm talking about the life he lived and what he did at the cross. Anything that gets in the way of that 
weakens our ability to be effective Christians on this earth. And so we contend with that. There's passion behind that for that reason. Let me give you a quick example of how this impacts the body today. Many of you know that there's various movements going on. Uh, one is called the Sacred Names Movement. And these movements are designed to keep Christians focused on the Jewish culture and the Hebrew language. Their narrative sounds something like this. The more Jewish, the better. Can you guys imagine how difficult it would have been to spread the gospel across the known world while requiring the disciples to enforce things like adherence to uh, the customs, the language, the phonology, the grammar, the verb and tense in the Hebrew language? Can you imagine how difficult it would have been? Think about the missions trips that you guys just heard about. Can you imagine us going down to San Luis Potosi and saying, oh, we want to show you this person, but before we do, we're going to make sure that you understand this stuff first. Can you guys imagine that? Let's, make, let's uh, get this point. The scriptures make it clear that the Godhead confused the languages of the world at the Tower of Babel. Do we then think that the same Godhead forgot what they did and said, oh, by the way, when you go and try to spread the gospel, bolt these things on, add these other things to it as well. The Godhead was never confused about what the Godhead did when it confused the languages of the world. Let's just think about it factually. Can you imagine them doing one thing and then thousands of years later saying, now, but you've got to make sure that this is part of the package. We submit to you as leaders in this church, the answer is no. So when you hear scriptures like the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this context, we realize that Jesus is referring to the authority of the Godhead. So to paraphrase, we belong to the Father, we are saved by the Son, and we are indwelt by his Spirit. Listen, the scriptures record that many came to faith in Jesus Christ long before they learned to pronounce that name that is truly above every other name. They met the person. They saw the love in his eyes. They watched the way that he lived. You can understand how following uh, a, uh, a ceremony or a culture or other things that gets in the way of meeting the person can be dangerous. The woman at the well, before she knew his name, what did she see? What did she hear? She saw eternity in his eyes and love in his voice. It's my prayer that through this message, we will all fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ. Not that I have the power to do that, but I'm praying that God, by his Spirit, would touch each one of us, and we would have a love relationship that continues to grow. Now, this may sound sappy and syrupy to some of you, but the, the truth is, this kind of love, it transforms everything. The second thing I'm hoping we walk away with is just a greater measure of boldness in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. The title of my message is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
I say again, everything. You guys like that math equation? <laughs> I want to get to my opening scripture, Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, because the law was very difficult to keep. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in anything but the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me. Paul's like, leave me alone. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You guys can say amen. 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 So in the brief time that I have with you guys this, this afternoon now, I want to try to tackle three points, and they all center around one thought. How can we best find our boast in Jesus Christ? What is it that we can do to find our boast in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And there are three things that we need to do or we ought to do, and the first one is to be ruined. The second is to learn to follow his lead. And lastly, to learn to boast as sons and daughters. All right, let's get into my first point. We need to be ruined. When we read letters like the ones that the Apostle Paul wrote, it's clear that he was all messed up in the head by what Jesus did, how he lived, and what he did at the cross. He was ruined by the cross. But what does it mean to be ruined by the cross? I'm going to take a look at C.S. Lewis's quote from The Four Loves to give myself a little help. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence, wholly superfluous. Let's just give C.S. Lewis a little you know, grace here. He's calling us completely useless creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses in God, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time, for breath's sake, as he's trying to breathe and hike himself up, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. Causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. So what C.S. Lewis is trying to say, and I'll try to do my own interpretation of that, he's saying that to be ruined by the cross means that you realize that before the beginning of time, and space and matter, before that stuff existed, somehow, some way, the Godhead existed. 
I recognize it's a very difficult you know, thought for some of us to digest our brilliant minds. We want an answer to what was going on before creation came into existence. Many of us struggle with balancing our own checkbooks. My suggestion is that we focus on the here and now and not worry about what we cannot solve. Amen? But before space, matter, and time existed, the Godhead existed. And that eternally existent Godhead chose to create. And in an instant, everything came into existence. Many scientists are still baffled by the act of something coming from nothing, the material universe coming from nothing. Many brilliant minds have sought for, searched for, longed for an answer to the act of creation without finding a God answer. The 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant was famous for saying things like, how then is perfection to be sought? Wherein lies our hope in education and in nothing else? He also said things like, without man and his potential for moral progress, the whole of reality would be a mere wilderness, a thing in vain, and have no final purpose. And finally, the American philosopher Thomas Nagel once expressed, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and, naturally, hope that I am right in my belief. It is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, I share these quotes with you just to make a point that we all know in this room that man will always look for a way to boast in something or someone other than the one who made him. But back to Paul, Paul understood that the Godhead knew before the framing of the cosmos that freedom of choice ultimately meant that mankind was going to need a savior. When you just stop and think about that, that all by itself ruins me because there was a split-second decision. The Godhead knew that sin was going to enter the world, but yet and still they chose to create. Secondly, the Son of Man, the Son of God, volunteered in that moment before anything happened, before creation took place. He had to have said, I got this. I will gladly pay that price. Even though it meant, and he knew this, he would, be, have to, he would have to become that which he had never known, that being sin. And when we hear scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, it's easy for us to read scriptures like that and not feel the weight of what the scriptures are trying to tell us. I don't need to bore you guys with what sin looks like. You guys know what mankind is capable of. You know what runs through these things we call minds. So even if the acts aren't, being, aren't taking place, you know what goes through our minds. You know what we're capable of. And so what I want to do is use Leviticus 16.20 to bring this point home a little bit. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Please say live goat. 
He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sin. This concept of all their sin is very difficult for us to digest. I'm slowing things down because I want us to linger here just for a second. And he put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. The wilderness is a foreshadowing, a foretelling of the darkness and the separation that Jesus Christ was going to suffer. Separation from the Godhead. That was something he never knew, never had experienced. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. So here's the thing. Paul understood that everything of any value, every hero, whether actual or fictional, every every feast ever mentioned, every ritual ever established, they were all mere shadows of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one to come. They were all pointing to someone else to fulfill this stuff. This thing we just read in Leviticus happened over and over and over again. Live goat after live goat after live goat was shouting of the coming Messiah, the perfect one. Paul got that. This is the ruining process. It starts with recognizing what was going on. What was the price that had to be paid? Why was so much blood spilled? And what was the blood for? In his book... Why Revival Tarries, the late, great Leonard Ravenhill said this about the Apostle Paul and his ruined state. He had no side issues, no books to sell. He had no ambitions but to spread the fame of Jesus, and so had nothing to be jealous about. He had no reputation, and so had nothing to fight about. He had no possessions, and therefore nothing to worry about. He had no rights, so therefore he could suffer no wrong. He was already broken, so no one could break him. He was already dead, so no one could kill him. He was less than the least, so who could humble him? Jesus, help me. He had suffered the loss of all things, so no, none could defraud him. Listen, Paul was so ruined that he was determined that no flesh should glory in his presence. I can pick scriptures from every letter that sound just like this. Paul was fighting this fight not just with the Galatians or for the Galatians. He was fighting it for so many, and so were some of the other disciples who were later apostles. So now I have a question for you guys. I'm turning the tables around. You're looking at me. I want you to look inside now. Have you been or are you willing to be ruined by what Jesus did at the cross how he lived, and what he did. Is that your personal declaration? Is that who you are? Let me make this very personal so that you guys can get where I'm coming from and why this is so important. When I'm on the internet and my mind is tempted to go where it should not, it's not my sweet, beautiful wife of 21 years that saves me from myself or from my enemy. When I'm driving down the street on a warm summer's day, minding my own business, 
and I happen to become aware that there's a young lady jogging down the street. Let's keep it real, men. And I'm aware that she's wearing something fantastically tight. It's not my sweet wife and all the intimacy and love that we've experienced all these years that saves me from myself. As much as I love her, she and that love is not capable of rescuing me. What I'm trying to tell you is I've been ruined by the most precious and sweetest of loves. It's the love of the Lamb of God. So when I'm driving and I know it, my eyes shift quickly to the one who made me, the one who saved me. I'm not perfect, but that's my that's my discipline. Amen. Listen, I have nothing against the medical profession or doctors or thank you, Dr. John, for all you do. I don't. But listen, I've struggled with depression. I've struggled with insecurity. I've struggled with all that stuff. I've struggled with sonship issues. Listen, I know that some doctors prescribe medication and it's and it's necessary. But the best thing for me. Wasn't the medication for me? I'm speaking about Galen. It was this love, this ruining, that humbled me. I'm on my knees, recognizing who my priority is. It makes it so easy for me to take offense when someone says something to me. I don't get destroyed anymore. If you talk about me after this message and say that was a horrible message, it won't break my day. Today's my birthday, by the way, so it definitely won't break my day. But you get my point. This saves you. This makes you new. Is every part of you turned upside down when you meditate on this type of love? When you think about it, does something stir in you? Is Jesus Christ the most important person in your life? See, I'm tearing away at ceremonialism, and I'm saying, don't look to the law. But if you don't hear the second part, then you need to look to the law, because if you don't understand the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then you got to have something to save yourself. If you don't know how to look to Jesus, the law has a lot more importance in your life. But you don't need to look at the law. You need to fix your gaze on the only one who fulfills the law. Listen. Does your heart skip a beat when you consider this way? I'm talking like I'm talking about my wife, skipping a beat, falling in love. But this is real. This love makes this love pale in comparison. No disrespect to my queen. She knows what's up. She knows what's up. So listen. This is what it means to be ruined by the cross. And once you've been ruined, you can't help but follow his lead. We need to follow his lead. Now, I frequently have conversations with people, and they say Paul got it wrong. Galen, Paul made a mistake. He boasted in error, and he elevated Jesus too high. He should not have done that. Or people will say, "Well, look, you don't understand." The book of Galatians, like many others, were written to what are called the lost tribe of Israel. So the church ought not, should not apply 
this kind of stuff to the modern-day church, this kind of thinking about who Jesus is. And when I hear things like this, my heart breaks a little bit because I, I realize in that moment that they probably don't understand or haven't comprehended the cross. I want to look at uh, Timothy Keller's thoughts on this in his book, Galatians, for you. The cross is by nature offensive, and we can only grasp its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. If it is neither of these two things, they haven't understood it. One can easily misunderstand Paul's boasting in Christ if one has not spent enough time meditating on how Jesus himself spoke. Just think about the implications of the words that were used by Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at John 5, 31 through 47. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witness of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Do you hear the boasting that Jesus is doing? He's saying, everything you ever thought you knew is about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men. Again, a a boast. He's saying, I testify of myself. Everyone else needed to have someone else testify about who they were and what they said they were. He's saying, I need no one to say a word about who I am. I validate my own testimony. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe we receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me again. Everything that was ever written was about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Listen, all Paul was doing was taking his cues from Jesus. He didn't get it wrong, he got it right. So can we hear, in the context of what we just heard Jesus say, fast forward to what we read in Galatians. Can you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, absolutely. You can, you can strive to strike a covenant with God through physical circumcision if you want to, or you can look to the only one capable of circumcising your own rotten hearts. He's saying, celebrate the Passover feast if you want to. Yes, do it. But plead the blood of the ultimate lamb over your life. He's saying, yes, enjoy, enjoy the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But remember, it was the unleavened, sinless body of Jesus Christ that purchased salvation for you. He's saying, please, yes, enjoy the the Feast of First Fruits, but celebrate even more the fact that the firstborn of all creation, he died, the ultimate seed, fell to the earth, defeated death, and produced an immeasurable harvest of righteous sons and daughters. Yes, you can call him Yeshua if you want to. Listen, I sometimes call him Yeshua, 
but know that he knows his name better than you do. And he hears every time someone utters his name with faith, he knows his name. This is contention stuff, guys. We're saying nothing before Jesus Christ. Don't you dare put anything before him. I don't know about you, but this kind of man, I'm compelled to boast. I can't help it. I want to jump out of my own skin. That'd be a horrible sight. I get it. (laughs) We are therefore compelled to boast. I want to get into my last point. We need to learn to boast as sons and daughters. Let me ask you guys a question. How desperate are you to learn to boast in Jesus Christ alone? Think about this. I ain't talking about boasting in your six-pack or your, pect- your pectorals. I, don't even, I, I haven't worked out in so long. Your pectorals or your biceps. I see DeAndre laughing at me. I get that. I'm talking about boasting in Jesus Christ alone. How many of you are desperate to do that? Jesus, who was fully God, humbled himself, put on flesh, and entered this world as a delicate, delicate baby. The scriptures record that he is called the Son of Man over 84 times. He is called the Son of God over 46 times. What can we today in Mosaic Church Austin, what can we deduce from this? that sons and daughters boast best in God. Before you're a priest or a prophet, before you're a student or an executive, before you're a doctor or a lawyer, or you're a mom, or you're a dad, if you are found in Christ today, you are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, you guys ought to celebrate that in Jesus' name. Galatians 4, 6 through 7 reads, And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. How many of you in this room, honestly, call out, Abba, Father? Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child... God has made you his heir. That needs to sink so deep in all of us right now. Lord, we need to receive that. So men, when I ask you this question, when you hear God say, son, to you, what's your reaction? Is the innermost being of who you are shaken? Do you feel overjoyed with the sense of understanding that Your creator is speaking to the very core of who you are. There's a stir in you. Ladies, I ask you the same question. When he calls you daughter, again, God speaking about you, and he says, I love you. I gave everything for you. You're the most precious thing in the world to me. I'm going to chase you to the ends of the earth. Is that what you hear when you think of daughter? Why is this so important, friends? Why is this point so important? Because Galatians 4.4 4 says, and don't put it up there, uh, you already did. 
Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his battle axe carrying warrior. Is that what it says? No. It says, oh, in the fullness of time, when it was time to take care of business, God sent forth his enemy crushing warlord. Is that what it says? No. It says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. When it's time to take care of business, sometimes we lead with our muscles and our strength and our intellect. But what he's saying is humble yourself and receive the the spirit of adoption. That's what I want to use in this church. He is still in the business of expanding his kingdom by deploying his sons and daughters. This world desperately needs a church that is adjusted and filled with righteous sons and daughters. And let me tell you something. At Mosaic Church Austin, that's what we long to be. We long to be a house filled with righteous sons and daughters. In Jesus' name. Let's give God a hand praise, please. The worship team can come on back, back up to the stage, please. The worship team can come on back up. I just want to pray as we get ready to wrap up. Now, as we've uh, talked about this, I-, I meant what I said. Mosaic Church Austin is serious about us continually asking the question, how well am I as it relates to my sonship or my daughtership. This isn't something you get overnight. It's something that you commit to and you walk out for the rest of your life. And so I just want to pray for you guys. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But what I would like to do is pray. You don't have to get up. You don't have to come up here. If you struggle with the reception of or the receiving of your God-given identity and you're tired of it, and you want, to, you want a genuine experience of what it means to be a son or a daughter in God, and you haven't really sensed that, please raise your hand. I just want to pray. Lord, we thank you. You see the hands, and you see the hands that did not go up. And since you're not a God of performance, it's okay. You love us all. You bled and you said, when I was on the cross, I saw everyone in this room. I pray that everyone in this room would see your eyes looking back, looking past the time that he was in, thousands of years in the future, and that he saw each one of us standing or sitting where we are right now. And that love, the love in your eyes, would interrupt our dreams. I pray that every person in here would begin to see the love in your eyes and receive their sonship, and we would begin to cry out, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.